Hi, my name is Grace, and the Old Testament reading is found in Ecclesiastes 2, 1 through 11. I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure, enjoy yourself. But behold, this was all was vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad, and of pleasure, what use is it? I searched with my heart to how, how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom, and how to lay hold on folly, till I might see what was, what was good for the children of man to do under the heaven during the few days of their life. I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I had also great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasures, the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, to the light of the sons of men. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also, my wisdom remained with me. And whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil. And this was my reward for my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had extended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity and striving after wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. The word of the Lord. Hi, my name is Becca. The New Testament reading is found in 1 Timothy 4, 1 through 5. Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. The word of the Lord. Hi, my name is Carol. Thank you for standing for the gospel reading found in John 6, 32 through 35. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. The gospel of our Lord. Praise be to our Lord. Remain standing for a moment as we pray. Spirit of God, we ask that you open our eyes, that we would see Jesus this morning. Spirit of God, open our ears, that we would hear the voice of Jesus this morning. And we ask that you would open our hearts, that we would love and serve and follow Jesus to the glory of God our Father, through Jesus the Son we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Well, last week we started our series through the book of Ecclesiastes, 
And uh, I know some of you are thinking, why would we do that? Why, why go through this book? This is, if I'm not mistaken, perhaps our first series of, uh, through an Old Testament book. And so I just want to say a couple things about this. Ecclesiastes falls in a category of books in the Old Testament uh, that is often called the wisdom literature. And they're different than some of the other books we're used to reading. We know what a gospel is like. They're an account of the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. We're a little bit familiar with what a letter is like because we have sorts of something similar to that in our day. And so when we read a letter of Paul to the churches or a letter from John, we can sort of wrap our heads around that. But wisdom literature is a little bit different. It's something um, much more from the ancient world than it is uh, something in our day that we can relate to. And wisdom literature, unlike history or or unlike the the prophet books, um, is meant to invite us into uh, the, the wrestling and the struggle and the tension. So whereas the Torah, maybe the, the, the Pentateuch or the first five books of the Bible might give us some instruction and some teaching about who God is, wisdom literature invites us in. And there's no formulas here. There's no sort of magic templates. There's, there's a wrestling we're supposed to do, reflection that we're, we are invited to participate in. And within the wisdom literature, you even have such diversity. Uh, I, I remarked last week that, that, that the, um, the, the man for whom the Old Testament department at Fuller Seminary is named, uh, or that the chair is named after him, Hubbard, said that Proverbs, which is also a wisdom literature book, but Proverbs says, do these things and life will work out this way. And Job and Ecclesiastes, which are other parts of the wisdom literature, say, we did and it didn't. And so Ecclesiastes is wonderful because it it, is sort of this other side of the story to some of the things we've heard in life. One of the reasons to do a series through the book of Ecclesiastes is regardless of when exactly it was written, it's meant to help us reflect on the questions in life, the questions that you only raise during times of peace and prosperity. So this book is written as if it's Solomon talking, and Solomon, of course, is this golden era, golden age of Israel's history where there's lots of peace and lots of prosperity, and even if it was written 600 years or so after Solomon, during the time when they returned from exile, it was still written in the quote-unquote school of Solomon, meaning the people are in a time of peace and prosperity again, and so they're recalling the great golden age and saying, aha, these were the questions we asked ourselves when we weren't running for our lives. And that's a little bit like our situation today. For all of us who live here in the United States, we have a relative amount of peace and prosperity that actually compared to other eras in history and other parts of the world, we'd say is an enormous amount of peace and prosperity. And so these questions are questions that, that relate to some of the things that haunt us at the end of a day or at the end of a night. Boy, what is the point of all of this? And doesn't it seem like it's so repetitive? I said last week that Ecclesiastes, on the one hand, confronts our optimism. So if you're the sort of person where everything is awesome all the time, you are the character from the Lego movie, then Ecclesiastes makes you ask, are you sure? Are you sure it's as good as you think it is? But it also redeems our cynicism. So those moments, for if you, maybe you're the person who's not the optimist, you're more the cynic, and you tend to say, who cares, or what's the point? Seems like we're doing all of this, and it doesn't make a difference. Ecclesiastes is a, is a way to sort of redeem that cynicism, to say, yeah, you know, you're right. There is an emptiness, but that emptiness is itself an invitation into life. That if you chase it all the way to the bottom, you'll find not just a grave, but you'll find resurrection. 
This is the third Sunday of Easter, and so it, there's a, there is, in a sense, a very wonderful way of correlating this series with the season that we're in. The question that we're wrestling with this week is what to do with pleasure. And so we've titled this Empty Pleasures, and I really, the question mark on the bottom is meant to be added to it. So empty pleasures, like are they, are they empty pleasures? What do we do with pleasure? pleasures. Ecclesiastes right away here in chapter 2. If you got your Bibles, you can turn there. Verse 1, Solomon's talking and he says, I said in my heart, come now and I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this was also vanity. You remember we talked about this word last week. It's the Hebrew word havel, a breath, empty, a vapor. It's the same word pronounced differently that is used for the name of Adam and Eve's second son, Abel whose life was but a breath. And so he's saying, I I did all of this pleasure, but it too was just a breath. And I said of laughter, it is mad, and of pleasure, what use is it? And then skip down here to verse 10. And whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure. Solomon's saying, I've gone ahead and explored all of it. I haven't held anything back. If we were to sort of make a little sketch here of what kinds of pleasures Solomon talks about in Ecclesiastes 2, we could probably categorize this a number of ways, but I've chosen three because three is what preachers do. And so the first is the pleasures of appetite, what we consume. Verse 3, I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom. Now, I probably need to say this word wisdom doesn't necessarily mean godly wisdom. It just means understanding. So as he's searching all these things, he's still keeping his mind about him, if you will. He's still sort of saying, I'm still thinking, but I'm going ahead and giving myself to it, you know. And so he says, "Um, my my heart's still guiding me with wisdom and how to lay hold on folly, seems like a paradox, Till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of his life, their life. And so the first pleasure he explores is the pleasures of appetite, the things you can consume and eat and drink and enjoy, the feasting, the party, the the folly. This word folly is kind of related to what you think it is, just the, the, the party, the crazy stuff. I mean, this is Solomon basically saying, there's a good kind of feasting, and then there's the partying. And I basically, while keeping my wits about me, gave myself to both. The pleasures of appetites. Next, he talks about the pleasures of achievement. What we build or accomplish. Verse 4, I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which, water, from which to water the forest of growing trees. Skip down to verse 9. And so I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also my wisdom remained with me. The pleasures of achievement, what we build. It's interesting that Solomon talks about gardens because gardens seem to be the the Hebrew or Old Testament way of talking about paradise, a garden. And you think about, if you were a traveler in the desert or whatever, a garden, a well-watered garden is this image of, it's paradise. And you can't help but reflect between Eden 
and this paradise that Solomon has built. And isn't it interesting that when God builds the paradise, his presence makes all the difference. But when humans build the paradise, God's absence makes all the difference. Here's Solomon trying to recreate Eden. He's got a garden. He's got it watered. He's got fruit trees. And he's, he's even sort of one-upped God, quote-unquote, because he, in his garden, no tree is forbidden. In his garden, there's nothing that he's holding back from himself. No restraint, no delayed gratification, no need for any of that. Have it all. When we construct what we think is paradise, the right house, the right whatever, fill in the blanks, it's the absence of God that sometimes makes all the difference in the world. Here's Solomon describing for us the pleasures of achievement. But next he goes on and talks about the pleasures of acquisition, what we can gain. Verse 7 and 8, I bought male and female servants and had slaves who were born in my house. I also had great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold, the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the sons of man. That relates back to that first pleasure of appetites. This is Solomon saying, you name it. What makes people enjoy life? I went for it. I tried every single one of it. And then his summary in verse 10, and whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for my toil. And then here it is, verse 11, his summary of the section. And then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it, because how many of you know partying is hard work? And behold, all was vanity, all was havel, all was empty, all was a breath. And a striving after wind, there it is again, it was empty, and the pursuit of it was like chasing the wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. One of the most interesting things when you look at this word havel is how it is used more than half of the times it occurs in the Old Testament, it's used in Ecclesiastes to talk about the vanity, the emptiness of the stuff under the sun. But six times in the Old Testament, it's used to name idols. Now, it's interesting because there are other Hebrew words. There are other words that people could have used to talk about idols. But every once in a while, to drive home the point, the prophet would not say the word idol. They would say the word havel. As if to say, you know, these gods that you're worshiping, they're not really gods. And I think there's this cross-reference here because there is a moment when good things can become gods. There is a moment when good things can become ultimate things. When we begin to treat good things as if they are ultimate, as if they are gods. And the prophets warn that when we do that, they become a breath, empty Jeremiah the prophet says this. He says, you chased after worthlessness and you became worthless yourself. So what do we do with pleasure? What shall we do with pleasure? You know, when you think about it, there have really been at least, more or less, these three approaches to pleasure, they're sort of the ancient human thinking of how to approach pleasure. This has been there for a long time. And the first is, we're going to do just a couple of words here that maybe you've heard before, maybe you haven't. First word is asceticism. 
Asceticism means to kind of deny yourself any pleasure. To sort of say, no, I, I don't need any of it. I don't want it. I can't have it. Pleasure's bad because it makes me, you know, makes me make bad choices. It leads to terrible things. And so I need to sort of deny myself all of it. Asceticism. You think about the ancient Greeks, the Stoics were some of the ones who sort of said, you know what, we, we, don't, we don't need to be moved by pleasure. We don't need to be moved by pain or by pleasure. In fact, we can sort of detach ourselves from this. If you think about some versions of Buddhist philosophy, it's kind of like this. Let's just detach. We don't, need to, we don't need the thrill of pleasure. We can just detach, and then nothing will make us weep, and nothing will make us laugh. Asceticism is one of the oldest ways of relating to pleasure. A second way of relating to pleasure is the opposite Instead of saying abstain or avoid or deny, it says indulge. And this is the word hedonism, where you're like, look, pleasure is all there is. So you might as well enjoy it. Why would you want to deny yourself something good? This is a little bit of the underlying logic of our culture, isn't it? I won't deny myself anything that feels right, and so you shouldn't deny me of anything that feels good either. We're, after all, we should all be free to pursue happiness and pleasure. The Epicureans were kind of like this in the ancient Greeks, and the Epicureans improved on hedonism a little bit by saying, look, you know, there's different levels of pleasure. So there's kind of the base, kind of the average person, but then there are refined pleasures, but it's all the same pursuit. It's the pursuit of making pleasure ultimate. And then there's this third philosophy that if I were to bet, and I wouldn't, but if I were to, I would bet that most of you in the room would, would fall here. And it's the word moderation. How many of you have ever said the phrase, well, you know, everything in moderation, right? Yeah. How about a cinnamon roll, dear? Well, it's just a little half. I mean, everything in moderation, you know. A donut, maybe just a little taste. Everything in moderation. You know who was one of the first great teachers of this approach is Aristotle, you ever heard of Aristotle's golden mean? To not be in lack, nor to have excess, but to have what is just enough. This is kind of our sort of Western way of thinking. Well, pleasure is good, but the way we relate to pleasure, the key is moderation. Just have just enough. Aristotle's golden mean, the inspiration behind Goldilocks and finding just the perfect thing. There are Christian versions of this, of course. All three of these have Christian versions. There are Christian versions of asceticism. Let's be extreme. Let's be radical. Let's live on a commune. Let's not buy stuff from the big bad corporations. Let, let's just be completely self Let's do this. The complete ascetic Christian radical life. And then there's the Christian version of hedonism where it's a little bit like, well, my soul is saved and I'm going to heaven, but does God really care what me and my boyfriend or me and my girlfriend do? I mean, it's kind of... Can't we just have fun? I mean, who cares? Don't be so uptight. I love you. God loves you. Let's get drunk. <laughs> if someone says that to you, by the way, it's probably a time to end the date right there. <laughs> there are Christian versions of this, and then even the last one, you know, moderation. It just sounds right. It sounds like good common sense. But I want to ask you, is that all the gospel has to say about pleasure? Is that it? Just... Either avoid it or indulge it or moderate it. God bless you. You're like, I mean, that just sounds like sort of, that's about as far as human thinkers could get. But does Jesus get us farther? 
Does Jesus make us think even more deeply about pleasure? I suggest yes. I think there are three things the gospel says to us about pleasure. I think there are three things the gospel invites us into with regard to pleasure. And the first is this. The gospel invites us to receive pleasure as a gift. To first of all, to say, yeah, it's a good thing. It's a gift. Do you know, I think as Christians, we've not done ourselves any favors with this because if you ask someone who didn't go to church or someone who is not a believer, what do you think Christians think about pleasure? They'd be like, oh, they hate it. They think it's dumb. Don't do it. Christians just want you to be unhappy and miserable and just then you get to heaven one day, right? Ooh, sign me up. You know? But actually, the Christian approach to pleasure begins by saying, receive it as a gift. These are some of the good things in life. In fact, at the end of this chapter in Ecclesiastes 2, Solomon says, there is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. It's great. This also I saw is from the hand of God. This is the first time Solomon really talks about God. We're at the end of the second chapter of his book, and finally he's talking about God. And he's saying this is from the hand of God. Here's the key phrase. For apart from God, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? Is there any pleasure that you could have that, doesn't, that is not allowed by the hand of God? Now, some of you, this is like really radical in and of itself. This is revolution. Wait a minute, I've got to think of pleasure as a gift from God. You mean God's not this miserly sort of ogre in the sky that's like, don't do this and don't do that. The more miserable means the more holy you are. You know, holiness and miserableness, you know, sort of, yeah. so wait a minute, you mean God is this generous, bountiful father that says everything good comes from his hand. You know what happens when you receive pleasure as a gift? First of all, you stop talking about what you're owed. You stop thinking about what's owed you and your right to, well, I deserve this. You know, with gifts, I mean, that would be the worst thing to do, right? If someone after church said, I've got a gift for you, and they gave you this, this extravagant gift, and you said, well, good, I know I deserve that. Or you say, well, I was thinking it was about time you showed up as my friend and gave me something. Well, that's really tacky, man. So when you receive it as a gift, it begins to break this sense of entitlement, the sense of, well, I'm owed happiness and I'm owed pleasures. Now, every time you get it, you're almost surprised by it. You're like, wow, what a gift that we were able to enjoy this afternoon together. What a gift that we were able to, you know. On and on. Build a snowman on Friday. Okay. <laughs> when we accept the limitations of a thing, we are free to receive its gifts. When we accept the limitations of a thing, we are free to receive its gifts. When you say, you know what? Ice cream is wonderful. Ice cream can't solve all the problems in my life. Don't try. <laughs> but ice cream is wonderful. Let's enjoy it. It's one of life's good gifts, and when I accept its limitations, that it can't fix my problems, it can't serve as a substitute for a meal, but it is a wonderful gift. So this is great. When you accept its limitations, you can accept its gifts. When you realize that a friend or a spouse or, 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 or a relationship, is this, it, it brings you such wonderful joy, but you realize it will not be the ultimate source of joy. You've recognized its limitations, 
then you're free to enjoy its gifts. And you know the opposite is also true. When you refuse to accept the limitations of a thing, you'll never recognize its gifts. You ever met a person who's always complaining about some aspect of their life? Oh, my, my husband's got it all wrong, and my friends, da, 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 and all these people, and all my coworkers, and blah, 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 blah. And you're like, you know, there are limits to how much your coworkers can do, or limits to how much you And as soon as you accept those limitations, then you are free to accept its gifts. That's revolutionary. The second thing the gospel invites us to do is the gospel invites us to reshape how pleasure is enjoyed. It doesn't just say, hey, receive pleasure as a gift and, and then just go for it. Is that all it says? No, it invites us to reshape how it's enjoyed. What do I mean by this? Let's think for a minute about the three things Solomon names, right? Appetites, achievement, acquisition, all three A's. I know I'm, I'm preaching for him today. <laughs> and let's think about what Jesus does with this. Feasting. What does the gospel say about the feasts that we have? Jesus says, it's great. Just be sure that you also invite some people to the feast that can't repay you. He doesn't say, how dare you party. He says, make sure you're inviting other people into your party. This is why we have meal groups. It's great. Have a meal. Invite. But make sure it's not just you and your besties. Make sure there's room at your table for people who are not like you. Make sure there's room. This is what church does for us. Church, church says, don't keep the party just among you and your friends. And that challenges kind of our selfish house church thing. Well, let's just draw it small, me and my boys, me and my peeps. Jesus says that desire to feast and to party is great, but make sure you have room for people who you wouldn't normally choose. And then what does Jesus do with our desire to achieve he says, look, if you want to be great in the kingdom of, of heaven, be the servant of all. Notice Jesus doesn't say, how dare you want to achieve greatness? Notice that Jesus doesn't rebuke the ambition for greatness. He just redirects it. He reshapes it. He says, you want to be great? Let me show you greatness redefined. It's called being the servant of all. What about, it? What about um, um, acquisition where I, I want stuff, I want to get stuff? Jesus says, store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust can decay. Jesus doesn't rebuke the impulse to acquire. He says, no, that's, that's great. You want to acquire good? Let me reshape this. Why don't you acquire the right things? Acquire a treasure in heaven by the way you are generous with your material goods. Give, and it will come back to you. Press down, shaken together, running over, Jesus says, Live this outwardly generous life, and it not only reshapes your desire to acquire, but it helps you acquire the right stuff. Isn't that beautiful? Jesus reshapes our, how our pleasures are enjoyed. Jesus doesn't rebuke our desires. He refines them. Refines them. Let me change it. Let me tweak this. Let me shape this. You want to be great? Be the servant. You want to acquire? Good. Acquire treasures in heaven. You want to party? Party. Make sure you invite the right people. And finally, the third thing the gospel does with our pleasures is the gospel redirects where pleasure ends. What do I mean by this? The gospel will not let pleasure end with us. 
We already know it won't let us treat pleasure as an end in itself, party for the sake of partying, drink wine for the sake of the wine. Drink, you know, it, it won't let us make those things an end in itself because then they become a God, right? But it also won't let those things end with us. You know, if you were to read Ecclesiastes 2 again and circle the amount of times you see the word I, it's pretty stunning, isn't it? I made, I got, I did, I built, I I, I, all of Solomon's seeking of pleasure ends with himself. I got it. I experienced it. I tasted it. I built it. It all ended with himself, and so he found it to be havel, empty, a breath. The gospel says, you know what? We want you to redirect where pleasure ends. It doesn't end with you. It ends with God. It ends in worship. It's meant to be this thing that lifts your eyes upwards, redirects your, your, your thoughts and your, and your mind and your heart and points you upwards. See, when pleasure is enjoyed rightly, it ends in praise to God. When pleasure is enjoyed rightly, it always ends in praise to God. You can't help it. You see a sunset, you see the sunrise, you see the mountains, you see a baby, you see a friend, you finish a great meal. This is, this is one of the reasons we pray before a meal, not because we're like, oh, have we better bless the meal, don't take bites for the devil, you know. <laughs> you bless the meal because you're saying, you know what, this is a gift. We get to sit down and enjoy delicious food with friends or family. Let's just stop and give God thanks. And every time you do that, you're reminding yourself that these things are how God's joy comes to us. And these things are not where joy comes from, but they are what joy comes through. Let me say that again. These things are not where joy comes from, but they are where joy, what joy comes through. There's a, a, a year or so ago, I was on a trip and I was... FaceTiming with our two-year-old Jane. She was probably 18 months at the time, and she didn't quite get how FaceTime works on the phone. And so I'm talking to her, and she sees me, and she starts to try to, like, give me a kiss through the phone. And she starts to try to eat, you know, Holly's phone to try to get to me. She's, Daddy! And it's hard to explain to her, you know, the phone is what dad is coming through, not where dad is coming from. You know, it's like that Zoolander scene. The files are in the computer. <laughs> no, no, it's just, it's just coming through it. And, as, and as, fun, as funny as that is, isn't that what we do with the good things of this life? We're like, a new job. Joy is in the job. And you try to break it. Like, oh, no, I've broken it. And you start a new relationship, like, joy is in this person I just started dating. And you start to become possessive and controlling over the relationship. I know none of you ever have done that. And all of a sudden, you're like, oh, I've killed all the joy in this relationship. You found a good friendship, and you're like, ooh, I'm going to cling to, they're going to be my best friend, exclusive and only friend, and how come they're sitting with someone else at church? Because the joy is in that friendship. Like, no, 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 the joy is coming through that friendship. Does that make sense? Church, that will change everything. These are not the things that joy comes from. These are the things that joy comes through. First Timothy, Paul says, for everything created by God is good 
And nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. For all God's good gifts, let us give thanks. Let us give thanks. But you know, a friend showed me a quote this morning from C.S. Lewis. He was talking about even the difference between gratitude and adoration. See, gratitude says, God, thanks for giving this to me. Adoration goes a step further and says, God, what kind of God are you that these gifts come from you? It makes you look upward even more, not to say, hey, thanks, for, but to say, how beautiful must you be? How generous must you be? How gracious must you be? How loving must you be? And Lewis compares it to following the sunbeam all the way up to the sun itself. And you say, this ray of sun is great, but look at this marvelous ball of fire. That's what God's good gifts are meant to do for us is you enjoy the pleasure of our appetites when enjoyed rightly. You enjoy the pleasures of achievement. And you say, congrats, you graduated. Way to go on that new job or that sale or that deal or, you know, what." Or acquisition, hey, that's really cool. You got a new car. I mean, we can rejoice in all of those things. But in the end, what we're saying is, thank you, God. And not just thank you, God, but what kind of God are you that these gifts are a reflection of who you are? How marvelous are you? How beautiful are you? How stunning are you, dear Lord? There's a family in the church who's, because of his research, has introduced us to the concept of gratitude as a habit and how it changes even families and children and what you do in the home. And for many of you, this can be a way to practice it, to say, you know, I'm just going to start finding reasons to give God thanks and adoration. And um, th- this, this family was telling me about how it's, it's really a, it's St. Ignatius in his prayer of examine, where you say, God, where did your grace come to me today? Grace just means gift, right? So God, where did your gift arrive to me today? And just sitting around the family table or or journaling at night and finding ways to talk. So we tried it one day. We sat around with the kids. It was all chaotic because that's what dinner time is when you have little kids. And we just say, hey, let's just try. Hey, hey kids, where did you feel God's joy today? I mean, take a little bit of a leap to use a phrase like that. And Jonas, he's five. He wants to go first, you know. He says, you know, today when I was playing soccer, I just felt God's joy coming into my heart. I thought, that's it. I mean, wait, just stop every moment. God, I just feel your joy coming into my heart. Thank you, God. I adore you. Not the thing, but you. 